Thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of Top of the Morning. I am Cameron, your host. Today, I am welcomed by a special guest, the first blind radio broadcaster. Yes, you heard me right. First blind radio broadcaster, torn the minors in the 90s, and now a host of his own podcast called The Baseball Lifer, Don Wardlow. Don, how are you doing today? Doing good, Cameron. How about you? Doing good. Thank you for taking the time to come on here and talk to me for a little bit. Um, just answer my questions. When you posted your inquiry of wanting to be on the podcast, I was your story was just too interesting not to reach out to you and bring you on. So I look forward to getting to know you a little bit, getting to know your story and your background. Yeah, I look forward to it myself. I heard one of your recent broadcasts and it sounded good to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So jumping right into it. First things first, you're, you're blind radio broadcaster. The first one you started in 1991. You had to have a prior like or love for sports, of course. So tell me, how'd you get into broadcasting? Well, now, it started out as me being a baseball fan. When I was eight years old, I discovered baseball. And Mm -hmm. I lived in New Jersey, you know, maybe 30 miles or so from New York. So you had the Mets and you had the Yankees. And if you had a good radio, you could get the Phillies and the Orioles and maybe a little of the Pirates on a good clear night. Mm-hmm. So I loved Bob Murphy, who broadcast the Mets for a lot of years. And on the Yankee side, I was a big fan of Phil Rizzuto. And the, the, the broadcasters, because I was born blind, the broadcasters were more real to me than the actual players were. You know, the Mm -hmm. broadcasters were the ones who painted the word picture that allowed me to know what was going on in the game. I loved it. And you obviously broke barriers by doing this because this, before you did it, was unheard of. Oh, yeah. And there there were barriers at even at the college level. Um, I had discovered as a high school student that there was such a thing as college radio. You know, until then, I had no clue about getting into broadcasting baseball. Because when you're only hearing the best of the best, all of whom ended up in Cooperstown, you never imagined that you could do that. But Mm -hmm. hearing college radio announcers, you know, they, they were only a few years older than me. And they were making mistakes like regular people. And I was thinking, I could do what they're doing. All I need is a sighted person to do play-by-play and I could do the color commentary and I could be, you know, every bit as good as these guys. And I was listening to some good college announcers too. I heard Michael Kay, who is now the TV voice of the Yankees. He went to Fordham. He was on WFUV. Uh, Charlie Slows was also with him at Fordham. And Charlie is the voice of the Washington Nationals on radio, and I heard Matt Lachlan on the Seton Hall radio station, and he's now the play-by-play voice of the Jersey Devils. And that's nice. And so I see in your bio, 1991, you started out with uh, Florida State League in Pompano Beach. Is that the Miracle League, if I'm reading that right? Well, Miracle was the name of the team, and technically the license called them the Miami Miracle. But they played in Pompano Beach. It was the Florida State League. And I had begun to learn my trade in college. And my college broadcast partner, Jim Lucas, 
had approached me in 1990, you know, we both had honest jobs. And he said, what would you think of, you know, trying to turn pro? And I said, let's go for it. And we did that thanks to Mike Vec, who was Bill Vec's son. And Mike pretty much ran the show in Pompano Beach and then in Fort Myers the next year when the miracle moved out of Pompano and into Fort Myers. Mike was in charge then, too. Uh, so 93 is when you went major first pro stint in the double A New Britain Red Sox in the Eastern League. And you were there until 2002, I believe. Uh, no, I was four years in Connecticut from 93 to 96. And Mike Vec had said, you guys need to see what you can do away from me. You know, see if some other boss will hire you See or see if you're just a Vec creation. You, you've got to decide that for yourself. So mm-hmm. Jim approached the general manager of the New Britain Red Sox at that time, and this was in the fall of 1992, and they hadn't had a game on the radio in 92. They were the only double-A team with no broadcasters. And Jim approached their general manager, and he said, my partner and I will broadcast all your games you don't have to give us a dime no meal money no no salary we will live off of what we make from our sponsors and the general manager i mean who's gonna refuse an offer where they don't have to pay any money for something that normally you know does cost a few dollars so he Hmm. gave us the job of selling a very bad product that team the last two years had lost uh one year they'd lost 93 games and then the next year they'd lost 89 games the two seasons before we joined them and they continued to be just as dreadful the next two seasons 93 and 94 but we were in double a so we were happy yeah and so tell me, like, your experience when you were doing this broadcasting. Like, how was it? How was your experience? And how how uh, successful did you feel or how empowering did you feel that you were doing something that you love, such as broadcasting baseball? Well, it was, it was amazing. The, the first year now, we really weren't all that serious about what we were doing. We were just so crazy about being broadcasters that we you know did and said a lot of goofy things on the air and we only did a handful of games that was the best deal that Mike Vec could have gotten for us that year and but then the second year we actually began to learn our trade because we had 140 games to do we couldn't be yelling and screaming into the microphone or we would never have any energy, you know, by about mm-hmm. game 70 or 80. So mm-hmm. we began to actually learn our craft and try to become better broadcasters. And we did more of that every year through the four years in New Britain and through three in St. Paul and then three in Charleston. 
And did you stop on your own terms? Stop broadcasting on your own terms? Yes, there was a situation. I was married at that time, and my wife needed a husband who was right there. You know, she had health issues, and if I was 800 miles away, and sometimes we were, you know, with the travel, you know, I wouldn't be able to help her. She needed help I couldn't give if I was still traveling, and so I started working with Alamo Rent-A-Car and then National Car Rental when the two um, started to do two, to work in the same building in Goose Creek, South Carolina. And I did that for five and a half years. And that was a better job than I ever thought it would be. And do you still currently reside in Goose Creek? Oh, no. I had to leave Goose Creek. I got a job in Myrtle Beach. And then I got injured. Oh, okay. And uh, following my injury, uh, they operated on my back. And they weren't doing me a whole lot of good. I wasn't... The therapy wasn't working, and if I'd stayed there much longer, I would have ended up in a wheelchair. So my family from Jersey came down, got me out of South Carolina, got me back in New Jersey, and it took a year and a half of therapy, but I was able to walk again following that operation when the surgeon said I might never walk again. Wow. Well, I'm glad you ended up walking again because that's a... That's a scary thing to be told. Yeah, just even spending a brief spell in a wheelchair, and maybe six months it was, but even that made me count my blessings once I was able to start walking again. And and, and um, you just, until you can't, you don't realize just what you had until you lose it. And thank God I only lost it temporarily. Yeah. For sure. In uh, 2015, from 2015 to 2019, you did a blog called Baseball As I See It, um, which I would assume is a play on words. Saying it as is, I see exactly. It. Yeah. And uh, not only that, but the, the book I'm working on about my life is going to be called Baseball As I Saw It. Okay, I was, so, so a, a little bit of a sequel. Tell, tells me I can't call it that. But that's what I would like to call it. Because that's kind of how I did see it all those years. My perspective is a little tilted. You know, I um, sighted people see things one way. Now, like, for example, the first ballpark I worked in was Pompano Beach Municipal Stadium. That's where I cut my teeth, if you will. Or if you saw The Godfather, that's where I made my bones. Well, Mm. that stadium... uh, I was there in 91, and five years later, an author named Mike Shropshire, obviously a sighted man, wrote some very scathing things about Pompano Beach Municipal Stadium in a book called Seasons in Hell about the early Texas Rangers. And it was a very funny book, but he could have been more kind to my first stadium where, where, I, where I learned my <laughs> trade. Yeah, I, I like yeah. that place, no matter what he thought about it. And there was yeah. another stadium in Colony, New York, just outside of Albany. And I would go in there with New Britain in 93 and 94. 
to face what was then the Albany Colony Yankees. And every sighted person said what a dump that place was. But I really liked Heritage Park in Colony, and I'll tell you why. It was the way they built it. The press box was basically right above the plate, and the sound was fantastic. The way the sound traveled, you know, the crack of the bat, the pop of the mitt, which are mm-hmm. vital to the broadcast that I was doing. And yeah. we, we tried to work on that in every ballpark, and I think Heritage Park in Albany might have had the best acoustics of any park we worked in. So that's the, my perspective, and it does differ, you know, from sighted person's way of seeing those ballparks. Yeah. And so you finished writing that blog in 2019, and then you mentioned that you're writing your book about your life called Baseball As I Saw It. So when can the people who are listening to this, when can they expect that book to be released? I honestly don't know because it's been an eight-year process, and it's not done yet, and it's not really close to being done yet. Um, it's if, if, if you haven't done a book, when you start, you find out just how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. And um, in the middle of the process, I had what you might call off the field issues that stopped me from writing the book for a couple of years. And now Mm -hmm. I've been able to get back into it, but I've gotten into it more slowly than I would have liked. I, I hope I can have it you know, out in a couple of years. I just don't know. Well, they say good things takes time, right? So if you're taking your time on it and putting your best foot forward, it'll still be something that people enjoy to read. Yeah, that's what I hope. You know, I didn't keep a journal all those years when I was broadcasting because I never thought I was going to write a book. And now uh, I wish I had. Now the closest I come to a journal is... I have some of the games that we broadcast. I do not have all of them. I don't have anywhere near all of them. I have less than 100 out of a total of something like 1,200 games that we did. Wow. So you you did a lot of games. I donated a lot of them to Seeing Eye, where I got my dogs from. I've gotten five Seeing Eye dogs. So, But I donated them, and then... I contacted CNI later on, and I found out they lost that donation. So those small handful of games that I have are all there is of my life's work. And so it's what I have to work with as I work on the book. Wow. Yeah, I wish that we didn't lost Google's those. a big help because I need to find out who made it to the majors on teams that we played against. Some of them I remember obviously like Mariano Rivera and Mm -hmm. Scott Rowland and Vladimir Guerrero. But there are guys I, unless I had Google, I would not remember that we saw them. And Encarnacion is one of them. He played for the Blue Jays around 2015, 2016, but we had seen him in the low, low level of the minors with the Rangers in the early 2000s and without google i wouldn't have remembered that right 
Right. Google's a big help. I mean, the biggest search engine search engine in the world. I would hope that we could find some good things on there to to bring some memories back. I found one thing that totally surprised me. I went to a concert in 1987 in Wheeling, West Virginia, an outdoor concert called Jamboree in the Hills with the girl I was seeing at that time. And I had no idea. I just wrote it into Google just in case. And it had the entire slate of performers for the 1987 concert, the ones that I heard and the ones I didn't hear on the second day because I was so sunburned from the first day that I was basically cooked and I could hardly move. That's nostalgic, I bet, huh? But it was wonderful to see the list on Google and remember that time with that girl, you know, myself when I was in my 20s. And, of course, I had the dog. I had my first seeing-eye dog. That's great. Um, and we kind of – so I kind of jumped to, to 2015. Um, I know you did something in 2009 as well, which is starting to – if I got the year right, you started writing music in 2009. And, and that was a funny thing. I'd gotten a job as a bill collector, and I don't know why suddenly – you know, sitting at my desk trying to force these people to pay money they didn't have, just all of a sudden, bang, I got the 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 words and the music for the first song I ever wrote, which was a song called Heaven Must Be Above the South, because I lived in South Carolina at that time. So I wrote mm-hmm. verses comparing other parts of the country to the south where I lived and my and the chorus was that heaven must be above the south and I went on from there writing different songs all old school country way too old-fashioned now but I, I enjoyed writing them and I re- enjoyed recording them and your most viewed song was Tom Dooley traditional that's on your really? YouTube it has one 1.3 thousand views you gotta be kidding so, yep, that, that's it. That's your and most viewed video. That's the, most one, viewed song. that's the one that goes, hang down your head, Tom Dooley, hang down your head and cry. Uh, that, yep. that amazes me that because there's, there's a lot of songs I did, some that I wrote and some that were covers. But I'm surprised that's the one that got people listening. Yeah. And so you, you said that music was always a big part of your life. Um, and then in 2009... Like you said, you started to make your write and record your own songs. So what inspired you to go out and start? Well, first things first, what impact did music have on you? And then how did that encourage you to start making music? Well, as, as a kid, music was a very big impact in my life. Uh, Mom used to say that if she had a record on for me to listen to, then she knew where I was and she knew that I was content. Mm -hmm. She played a lot of records and a lot of tapes, you know, to, to, to keep my mind stimulated. And I, my one uncle was a tremendous Johnny Cash fan. And he had, must've had about every Johnny Cash record ever made. And he would play them when, I was there, and he'd turn his tape recorder on. He'd have me 
singing along with the songs when I was about five or six years old. And now my great niece, one of my great nieces, I have a bunch of them, but one of them is five years old. And the last time I saw her, she was singing a song by Taylor Swift to the car radio. Yeah, yeah. Taylor Taylor Swift, I, I think she calls her fans her the Swifties or something like that. I don't know. I'm so. not one of them. <laughs> but that's yeah. okay. When it's one of my great nieces singing the song, I love it. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I I have made some music here and there as well. And my nieces love listening to my music in the car. And they always say I'm the best artist that they've ever listened to. So cool. I know I know how that can make someone's heart happy. Um, I'm sure mine just can say, Uncle Don, please don't sing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, typically my peers say that. They say I can't sing. But I'm like, that's okay. I can't <laughs> sing. But, you know, I have other talents. At least I like to think so. Um, growing growing up, who's your favorite artist to listen to? Johnny Cash, and really Johnny a Cash. lot of country singers. Tom T. Hall. My uncle Jim had a whole lot of different country records, and he said you can't just stick with Johnny Cash. You got to learn who all these other great country singers are. And he would make what would later be called mixtapes. He'd have a bunch of maybe fifteen or twenty songs on a cassette tape all by different singers, and he would tell me who they were, you know, and I I would hear them on the radio as long as there were country stations to listen to, and that now this area doesn't have a whole lot of that, which is too bad. Yeah, I I feel like music nowadays, at least mainstream, is just going towards just very much one-track. They talk about the same thing all the time, just with the different sound behind it. And, you know, it's just everything kind of sounds the same nowadays. So back then, I feel like some the music had some um, some uh, what's the word I'm thinking of some character. The music has some character. You back got then. It. Every, some everybody, personality. Everybody sounded different. You knew Johnny Cash. You knew Tom T. Hall. You knew Patsy Cline from all the other women singers that were out there. And it's just yeah. not so much. And even broadcasters now all sound like each other. You know, when I was a kid, you knew who Bob Murphy was. You knew who Phil Rizzuto was. His voice was unmistakable. Uh, One of my idols was Howard Cosell. Nobody ever sounded like Howard. Now, you could could try to impersonate the man. And uh, one of my professors in college, one of the first things he said to me was, you have to get the Cosell out of your voice. It's obvious you love the man, but you are never going to get hired if you keep sounding like Cosell. Well, I worked on it and worked on it and did get hired, but my mom went to her glory saying I still sounded like Howard Cosell. (laughs) But you got the job. That's all that matters. Oh, you know it. Yeah. And so I feel like nowadays there's really only one, maybe two broadcasters that if they're calling a game, I can watch the game solely because they're calling it. One of those guys being Gus Johnson, if you're familiar with him. Yeah, basketball. And yep, he does football as well. Um, and he so he does a lot of Ohio State football games or just like college game day primetime football games. And I love when he calls the games. And then the other one, a lot of people don't love him, but I got so used to hearing him is Chris Collinsworth, and he'll do you know Thursday night, Monday night football games. 
So I think those two guys, they have the most unique voices or some of the most unique voices nowadays. Right. So and I for, guess that for, could base, be... for baseball, the one real unique voice is John Miller, the voice of the Giants now, but he's been with the Rangers, the Red Sox, the Orioles, and most famously with ESPN with Joe Morgan, the Eminem boys. And the worst move yeah. ESPN ever made was getting rid of Joe Morgan and letting John Miller slip away and go to the Giants. Yeah, ESPN did a lot of cuts recently. Some I agree with, some I don't agree with. But that's just, I guess it's just how the dice roll when you're in that type of industry, unfortunately. So you have a, you have a podcast presently called The Baseball Lifer. So to our listeners who will be listening to this, can you tell them what they can expect to hear on your channel and where they can find? Certainly. The Baseball Lifer podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple, whether it's Spotify, whether it's TuneIn. You know, it's called The Baseball Lifer. A new one comes out every Friday. Um, the latest one, which will be released at midnight tonight because... That's technically Friday. Uh, it's my guest was Ricky Hill, and if you watch ESPN, there's been commercials for a movie called The Hill, and that movie is the life story of Ricky Hill, who, in 1975, began a four-year baseball playing career in the minors, but he had a degenerative spinal condition, and early on. The doctors were saying he might never walk. And now later in life, he only can walk because of a lot of metal work that's been put in that that keeps him walking, keeps him out of a wheelchair. But he mm -hmm. had that, that career. And the movie stars Dennis Quaid and Colin Ford. And I was able to interview Ricky for the baseball lifer along with the movie director, Jeff Salantano. Now, I certainly never imagined anything like that would happen when I began the Baseball Lifer, which was last October. You know, the first couple of episodes, I didn't even have a guest. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, the second one, I was supposed to have a guest, and he pulled a no-show, which happens sometimes, but it's difficult when it's very early in your series. You don't want that to happen yeah. you know, early on. But right. the longer I went on, the more guests I've been able to find. And if I can't find them, once in a while I get a letter from somebody. And I got one from a lady named Katie. And Katie sent me an email about Ricky Hill because I'd never heard of him. She, she said he was a baseball legend. And I emailed her back and I said, Katie, I've been a baseball fan for 50 years. I was a broadcaster for 12. I have never heard of Ricky Hill in my entire life. How can we call him <laughs> a baseball legend? Well, she sent me an email back describing what I told you earlier about his condition and the fact that he played in the minors in spite of that condition in the 70s when inclusive wasn't a word many people had heard. I don't think as a blind broadcaster I could have made it in the 70s, but 
Ricky made it with his handicap, you know, even though his dad was dead against it. You'll see that with Dennis Quaid in the movie, and it's opening on Friday the 25th all over the country. You know, I timed it so the podcast would be released for that, so people would be able to hear the podcast and maybe go see the movie. I'm hoping to go myself. It's playing at a theater in my town. But before him, during the first season, some of the highlights are I had Eric Sherman, who's written a good many baseball books, mostly about the Mets. But he was on plugging a book called Daybreak at Chavez Ravine about Fernando and Fernando Mania. And so I ran, I had a, a show with him. And then I reran that on the 11th of August when the Dodgers were going to retire Fernando's number. And I thought the audience deserved a rerun of Eric's program. Um, I think the, the highlight for me was interviewing John Sadak, who was the TV voice of the Cincinnati Reds. Now, John mm-hmm. had gone to the same college that I did. He just went about 15 years later. I graduated in 1987, and he graduated around 2000, maybe 2001. So, but I, I, I got a chance to interview him. And he, he was, he was great. And it was just when the Reds were starting to catch fire. They went on an 11 game winning streak. This was when Ellie De La Cruz had just been promoted and they are such a young team. They're probably still a year away, but my goodness, if, if they don't tear up that team, that team's going to do some damage in the next two, three years. And interviewing John Sadak was one of the highlights since I opened the podcast. I really thought the podcast would just drop like a rock. You know, nobody would listen to it. I wouldn't be able to get any guests, but that's not what yeah. happened. Yeah. And that's good. And I think we all have, cause I was kind of that, that was kind of the same concern I had when I started mine. Cause I started mine last year, uh, August. So, uh, around the same time I started yours, but right. I get it. I get starting it. I'm like, nobody's going to care. Nobody really cares. So they care. I don't know how many listeners are going to get, but I, I'm going to enjoy it while I'm at it and I'm going to do it and let that be that. So all that to say, if, if you're enjoying it, you're getting the guest. If you're enjoying it, just keep at it. I mean, it's it's an enjoyable thing to do. And, you know, this is a good time to do a podcast about baseball as compared to two or three years ago. I quit the, the blog at the end of 2019 because the games were just, to quote Casey Kasem, ponderous, man, really blanking ponderous. And mm-hmm. they were so slow. You'd have a four-hour game, and the score would be two to one, and it would have like yeah. fifteen or sixteen pitchers. So that just, that, you know, I didn't, I didn't like disown baseball, but I didn't want to write about it. You know, I listened to the games. Obviously, I followed the games. I followed my Yankees. Now, I, I started the podcast after they did not strike because it looked like they were going to strike 
in 2022. And when they mm-hmm. got that season done and played that whole 162 games, I got the idea. This is better than than it was, better than it looked even a few years ago. So I'm going to start this podcast. I was already a regular panelist on another podcast called Sports Roundtable. And I asked the guy in charge of that show, you know, for his blessing. I said I wouldn't stamp on his territory because his show covers a lot of sports I don't know anything about. You know, I get some time mm-hmm. for my baseball, but I'm kind of lost talking about football, basketball, and hockey. So I told him I wanted to do one that specialized in baseball all the way. And Bob said I could do it. And and now that's what I am doing. My brother has chipped in. He has a computer company called Portland Computer Services. And I've got a mm-hmm. couple, couple of commercials for the company that run during the podcast. Okay. So what are your thoughts? Because uh, I know you said you stopped writing about baseball just because they were just so slow and so boring. So what are your thoughts about the rule change on the pitch clock? Do you think that helps or hurts the game of baseball? I love it. It's the best thing they could have done. It's the only thing Rob Manfred has done right. I mean, I absolutely hate the the ghost runner or zombie runner or even Manfred Man. I think that's the best title I've heard yet for the runner on second base because – it was Rob Manfred's idea. So, yeah, call him the Manfred man. Um, so I, I don't I don't like that one, but I do really like the pitch clock. It gets the game moving much more sharply and much. It's, it's you don't you don't wait and wait and wait while the pitchers fooling around behind the mound and the ball players are adjusting their uniforms, shall we say. And you just, you just, yeah. and that just, that's, that's what, which just drove me bananas back about four or five years ago. But they started this in the minors and it, it looked good then. And I'm really enjoying much quicker games and it's very lively. It keeps the announcers on their toes, which is great because yeah. you, you, you don't want an announcer who's, falling asleep and sometimes that's how it sounded during some of those games but they're right. they've got to be on their toes and while that's a challenge for some of them especially like the denny matthews and the john sterling of this world who are getting on in years you know that can be a challenge but for the younger announcers like john sadak and like um, eric nadell in texas and his partner matt hicks these guys you know, they've got a much quicker game and a much more entertaining game. The base running is wonderful. Ellie De La Cruz, he's faster than Blue Blazes. And he, yeah. he brought a lot of excitement to Cincinnati along with the other rookies they have. They've got more rookies than you've got time to talk about them. That's why I yeah. say if they don't tear up that team, they'll be doing some damage two, three years down the road. Yeah, because I've always been a guy where when it came to baseball, I would have to be at the stadium in order to watch the game just because of how slow it was. Now, I have a minor league team around where I live, and so they had the pitch clock, so I would enjoy going to the stadium and, you know, just hanging out with friends. Which one and, was you know, it? Watching the game, but Durham Bulls. Ah, the, the, 
they, the basis for the movie, Bull Durham. That was a tr- tremendous movie. That's one you could count AAA on. For, or they, yeah, AAA for the Tampa Bay Rays. Right, that's yeah. what I was going to say. They're, they're AAA Tampa, but I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah. know, Tampa has the only blind announcer who's still doing it. He's with the Tampa Bay Rays major league team, and he broadcasts their games in Spanish. You know, there's a play-by-play guy who can see, and Enrique Olu, who is totally blind, as I am, does the color commentary the way I used to do in my last three years in Charleston, because that was a Rays team then, and they were still called the Devil Rays. But Enrique would consult with me and tell me the Spanish words so I could interview our ball players because a lot of them couldn't speak a word of English. And my Spanish mm-hmm. was limited then and is even more so now. But with him yeah. consulting, he gave me a ton of help. And it was very kind of him to come on and be an early guest on the baseball life or before I was getting guests on a regular basis. Because he's not only a broadcaster all year long, he works in the public defender's office. Oh, wow. And ju- just imagine if you're a criminal and you need a public defender and the guy they trot out is blind. Think about that. Yeah. And think about yeah. the way most people think about blind people, because we we don't right. we don't get a, a lot of trust. Unfortunately, we don't, you know, we we don't inspire a lot of trust in people of a certain amount of intelligence. You know, if you have more than that, you know, and you, you do a little thinking, you know, you didn't think a blind person can do a lot of the things that a sighted person can do, but some people just can't think that way. Yeah, unfortunately, because the only thing about being blind is that you can't see. It doesn't mean you're any less inept or less capable of doing anything that a seeing person can do. And that's just the ignorance of people, you know. It's just uh, some people thinking that they're they're better than others just because they may have one more thing that somebody else doesn't. You know, some of the some of the ones who cause the most problems are hospital workers and they ought to know better but especially you would think so right especially yeah. before i got hurt i would get into the hospital just for my lungs not for you know injuries to my body and they would act like just because i'm blind that i was at risk of falling more than anybody else but before i got hurt that was not the case since i hurt my back yes now Today, I'm a greater risk to fall than somebody else. But 15 years ago, I was not. And it was frustrating, you know. And and when they, when they would, when I would have one of my relatives uh, with me, taking me out of the hospital, they would tell my relative all the instructions. And whoever I was with would say, hey, tell him. He's the one who was in the hospital. He needs to know the instructions. Yeah, it's like some people think that whether you're deaf or blind, that they think you need to be babysat yeah. all the time. You got and it. it's like, it's like you've li- you've lived your life all the way up to this point the way it is. Now all of a sudden, like I need a babysitter. It doesn't make sense. And yeah, or if you're in a if you're in a wheelchair, and this is funny, I dated a girl who was in a wheelchair for a while, and we had a similar story to tell. If we would go to a restaurant 
with somebody who was normal, um, the, the waiter would ask the normal person, well, what does he want in my case, or what does she want in the girl's case? So when mm-hmm. she and I would go there to a restaurant, me in with my seeing eye dog and her in her wheelchair, the waiter would be really lost. He wouldn't know who to ask for an order. But it turned out both yeah. of us, both of us were perfectly capable of ordering what we wanted. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I know how to. I know how it is now, more so than before, because my sister in law is deaf. So uh, I know how it is going out with her, and people like lose their minds because they're like, okay, well, I have to you know, basically shut her out because she's not going to understand what I'm saying, yada, yada. And it's like, I mean, it's, it's no, it's no need for that. It's just, she's still a human. She's still a normal person. Exactly. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that she can't do everything. Like she still goes grocery shopping. She still drives. Yeah. She still has a job. Excellent. Like same thing that everybody else does. So she doesn't need to be babysat. You don't need to be babysat. Just because someone's blinded, that doesn't mean they need to be babysat. They've been doing it all their life, and they're going to continue to do it. There you go. I was taught by my mom how to do the laundry and how to run the microwave. And and she said, you're going to have to do this. There's no guarantee you're ever going to get married. It turns out that I did, but even when I was married, yeah. I still did the laundry, and I still did the shopping because I married a woman who wasn't terribly good at the shopping and the laundry we did together. (laughs) I did mine and she did hers, but at least I knew how to do mine because I really didn't want, you know, her to have to worry about mine. I wanted her to worry about hers. Right. Right. And salute to your mom for teaching you those things and not just kind of leaving you out to dry, just assuming that you weren't going to be able to do these things. So big shout out to her for exactly uh, setting that, you up for success. That, that yeah. was vital. I, you know, I went to college, and I knew you know how to how you know how to keep keep things together. You know how to get from the dorm to the cafeteria, which was a big deal. You know, it's always mm-hmm. a big deal to get to the cafeteria and to the campus yeah. pub, which is an even bigger deal. And, you know, yeah. getting my yeah, first yeah. C&I dog, that's like a sighted person getting their first car. A whole new world opens up to you when you've got the dog. And I had the dog on campus, and these heavenly creatures called girls were suddenly talking to me. And they'd never done that before. And so, Isn't it crazy how a dog can do that? When you have a cane, you don't get a lot of attention from girls. But when they come up to you and say, Ooh, look at the beautiful dog. What's his name? You know, that's when you, you know, are, are able to open up a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy that that's what it takes for someone to have a conversation with you sometimes. Yeah, whatever works. Yeah, whatever works. So in wrapping up, is there anything that the listeners or I can expect in the near future that we may not have talked about yet on this uh, episode? Well, I'm going to keep the show going as long as I can. I know I have an interview in the can with Evan Weiner, who is a sports journalist. I'm looking forward to one with sports photographer Bob Busser, who's been 
taking pictures since the 1960s of sporting events. I'm looking forward to talking to him and having him on my program. And I'll keep the show going as long as I can. I'll keep working on the book and then go from there. Cool. Um, I look forward to what's to come next. I look forward, and I'm going to follow the podcast on my my end. I'm going to link the podcast down in the bio so people can uh, follow it also and check it out. I'm also going to link your YouTube down below. And when you finish your book, don't hesitate to email me, and I'll add that to the link, and then I'll check that out as well. Um, so, and the use of the title of that is going to be the baseball or how I saw baseball or baseball through, sorry, baseball I'm about as to butcher I saw this. It. Baseball as I saw it. Sorry. I was about to butcher that, no um, but I'll make sure I, I'll make sure I link all that in the bio. So people listening to this can, can check you out and follow your story and, um, hear about your life and, you know, just what what you did all the way up until this point. I think more. I think a lot of people would be interested to 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 more, learn more about you. Well, I hope so. You know, I my brother when I got hurt and I was in a wheelchair, my brother said you gotta do something to keep your mind going. He and he had the idea that I should start the blog, and I started doing the blog for a week or two or three, and. I, I got the idea, well, you know, I'm doing this blog. It's going good. I still got a whole lot of time here while I'm in this wheelchair. Why don't I start a book about my life, my life in in baseball especially? You know, from the time I left baseball, you know, there's not going to be much of that in the book from, from, from the time after. But the book is going to focus on my early life and my college years doing college baseball and then my 12 years as a pro yeah i look forward to it i look forward to it so with that being said that is all for me um if you have anything else that you want to add you can go ahead and add it if not we can go ahead and wrap up yeah this is it's been a lot of fun i'm i'm glad you brought me on the program of course and i thank you for taking the time to join me um i had a good time also talking with you and maybe we can do it again down the road once your book is released that would be great kind of touch base again yeah yeah for sure so with that being said to all my top of the morning listeners thank you for tuning in make sure you click the link in the bio to become a supporter of this podcast everything is appreciated until top next the morning, time top of the morning 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 hold on